Welcome to another episode of Facts. I'm your host, Stephen Boyce, and today we're going to be starting a new series, a little mini-series, and I'm bringing in my co-host, Tyler West, to do this series with me on the discussion of Ignatius of Antioch. Now, I did a whole episode on Ignatius of Antioch already, but this time we're actually going to give an overview of each of the seven original letters. And just kind of as a quick summary and introduction for him, I don't want to get into his life too much. If you want to hear more about that, you can go back to my previous episode on that and and get all the information as far as his life, his martyrdom, his travels. But just kind of giving us a reminder to those who may be tuning in for the first time who don't follow the program. uh, When we talk about Ignatius of Antioch, we need to recognize who he is. Number one He is an apostolic bishop in the church of Antioch. He is second from the apostle Peter. So when Peter was in Antioch, he was over the church of Antioch and Rome. And after he died, Evodius took the seat there in Antioch. And after him came our man today. Now, Ignatius was also a person who is known for being associated with with John the Apostle. And there's multiple attestation to his connection to the Apostle John, his correlation with John's other disciples, like Polycarp, which we're going to see in a minute. And he would have probably been familiar with others as well, like Papias of Heriopolis and others. But when we look at him today, he is known by another name. He was given the name Theophorus. Now, it's two words in Greek, and it means the God-bearer. So he's God-bearing. Now, there's some myth about that. We don't know all the details as to it. And and honestly, I think Tyler and I both probably find it less plausible, but it's worth noting uh, that he received this name, perhaps, because he was considered the child in Matthew 18 and in Mark chapter 9, when Jesus held the little child and picked him up and showed him the apostles, saying, unless you become like a little child, you will not enter into the kingdom. And so some say that this child that Jesus picked up and showed the disciples was Ignatius, who became known as the God-bearer. Now, there's reason to believe that. It's kind of later. Uh, Anastasius, the librarian in the ninth century, uh, talks about this, received uh, the information that he had received from it. There's also a sermon uh, by a a later person called uh, St. Francis of DeSales, the purification of Mary de Sales was Bishop of Geneva, and uh, he was a saint in the Catholic Church. He preached a sermon uh, in the 17th century discussing how he said these words, How blessed was it, the glorious Ignatius, since he was taken up in our Lord's arms, given us as an example to the apostles. How precious and sweet was that kiss. What sacred, sweet words our Lord said to this happy child he kissed. How blessed he was to allow him to be carried and handled by the Savior who rewarded him by engraving his own sacred name in the depths of his heart. And that is the explanation for his name. Now, again, I I don't think that's very plausible, um, but it is interesting to note that is one of the theories about him. More importantly, whether that happened or not, Tyler, the idea that he knew the apostles and he was appointed as a succession bishop to the apostles is what is most important. And John Chrysostom in his homily stated, for I do not wonder at the man alone that he seemed to be worthy of so great an office, but that he obtained this office from those saints and that the hands of the blessed apostles touched 
his sacred head. And therefore, John Chrysostom is, is telling us, reminding us that this man was appointed by the succession of laying on of hands from the apostles. And that is why his letter is so important. Not so much whether or not he sat in the lap of Jesus. That's a cool fact if he did. But the fact that he's a succession bishop in line with the apostle Peter and a companion of the apostle John working within the same lifetime as John. What significance do you think that plays in what we're about to get into, Tyler? I think it gives him the the authority. Like he he knows what he's talking about. He's so close to the apostles. He would have, you know, according to John Chrysostom, that he was, you know, ordained by them, had their hands laid on. So I think it gives far more credibility to to the things that we see in his letters. This this man knew the apostles. And so if we want to get as close to the early church as we possibly can, then these letters, these seven letters that we're going to go through are are really the the, the window into what the early church taught. I, I can't think of a better person than somebody that wrote mm-hmm. seven letters to, to different churches through a region on what the church was, who it was, the practices it had, um, than a man who was you know, personally ordained by the apostles and is, is just two seats removed from, from Peter. Um, I, I think that's a, a pretty valid um, resource when it comes to figuring out what the early church was like. Yeah. And within that statement, we're going to be moving into these letters because he's demonstrating to us the authority you're talking about, but he does it in a gentle way. It's not that he ignores the big elephant in the room, like, Hey, I've been given authority as a bishop, and so have your other bishops who've been appointed by the apostles, and you need to follow the procedures of the church. And this is something that I think we have to wrestle with going into these letters, because today we're only going to look at three, then we'll look at a few more next week, and then we'll look at a few more the week after that. Today we're going to be focusing particularly on probably one of the most popular is the Ephesians. Now, another popular one he wrote is to the Romans, but two less popular, but I think very significant, uh, is the Magnesians and the Tralians. Now, we have letters to the Ephesians, obviously, in the New Testament. Paul wrote one, and John wrote a small section within the seven churches of Asia Minor uh, who received a, a message from Jesus through the apostle John. So the Ephesians are not alienated from receiving these kinds of letters. Now, we don't know much from the New Testament about the Tralians and the Magnesians, so we'll kind of get into them because they're all really close in proximity. So when Ignatius is being arrested, he's being carried back on his way to Rome, and on his way back to Rome, he stops in Smyrna, and he starts writing these letters who his buddy Polycarp is going to distribute for him. He also has a personal letter for Polycarp as well. And we're going through what we believe to be the chronological writings. These would have been the first three. And in writing these letters, he gives to us things that I think the modern church can learn from the ancient church. Because what we have to do is we have to say, okay, if Ignatius is wrong here, which we're going to find in other works like Polycarp, Clement of Rome, who are his companions, Papias, and others, when you start examining their teachings. And then soon after that, you have Justin Martyr, who's not too far removed from him. When they start getting into the practices of the church, and they look very different from what we may be accustomed to in modern day American churches or evangelical churches, our first motion is to excuse these guys off as insignificant and that their practices are alienated from the New Testament. But here's what we have to conclude, Tyler, when we say things like that. 
that somewhere, somehow, within a few years, if John died in 101 AD, Ignatius is a companion and a student of John, while also a bishop in Peter's church, if he is doing something that is outside of the boundaries of the New Testament, breaking the true apostolic tradition and starting a new movement that everybody else seems to do the same thing, like his buddy Polycarp, who was also trained by John, like Clement of Rome, who was trained by Peter and Paul. All of a sudden, these guys are conspirators within the lifetime of the apostles and right after the, the death of the apostles, start pulling fast ones to rapidly change the church to be what they are about to claim it is. And I just don't think that's plausible. What do you think? I agree. I mean, you're, you're saying to, to throw these guys out and say that they, they're practicing a different, um, you know, church structure and, and church practice. You, you'd have to say that they changed everything about what the apostles were about within a matter of, you know, 10, 15 years without any backlash or fighting. There's no record of any arguments. There's no records of any disputing. And, and you have you have a worldwide movement. Um, you know, Ignatius talks about the bishops being worldwide. You have that kind of movement within a 15-year period without any sort of backlash documentation said, hey, we had an issue here. It's just highly improbable. And we wouldn't do that with any other history book, nope. any other set of history. Um, and so I think to, to put the Bible in, an, uh, in a different category and start judging it that within a 10 or 15 years, the entire culture of the church was radically different, um, I think is, is just illogical. Yes. And, and so with what you're saying there is this would require a movement that didn't create any schism because right. this is, a, if, if they rapidly changed something, some of the other churches that the apostles started and people in those churches that knew John perhaps later, or even Peter or Paul at one point, they're going to be sitting here going, what is Ignatius of Antioch doing? I mean, and there's going to be massive schism of calling it out. Yet Ignatius is claiming that the bishops are in, 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 in unity on these issues. So to me, it's a grand conspiracy and you're right. Nobody else would handle history that way. And as I've stated on this program multiple times, folks, if you want to know what the Apostles Church looked like, and you need a better picture to fill in some gaps that the New Testament doesn't share, because the New Testament doesn't cover the extension of it, go to the individuals they trained, and there you will find the practice of the apostles and their tradition beyond the New Testament. We do not have to just stay in the New Testament. We start there, but we don't have to stay there. There's a difference in starting in the New Testament and only staying in the New Testament. We start with the New Testament because it's an infallible source. It is written by the true authorities of Christ himself, and that's the apostles he appointed who are promised the true and inspiration. And we see, even in these letters, Tyler, Ignatius deferring to the apostles' authority as greater than his own. He's not claiming it for himself. Clement does the same thing in his letter. Polycarp does the same thing in his letter. Ign these individuals recognize they are succession leaders, of the apostles, but they are not to be confused with having the same authority that the apostles had, only that they were given the opportunity to guard and protect the texts of the New Testament that the apostles wrote, continually teach, memorize, and transcribe them, while also continuing their theology and doctrine in the churches they started to continue the message of Jesus in the world, and so that the churches of Christ would be one church, one church universally, 
under the banner of no other name than Jesus Christ. And that in that banner and under that banner, they would see a unified front where Christ's words ring true. I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail. So as we get into some of these letters, we're covering three again today. We're covering three Ephesians and Magnesians and the Trillions. And what we find very quickly is that creed continues. Now we see in the New Testament, creedal language, like 1 Corinthians 15, Paul uses creedal language. It was something that continues to be instilled in their disciples. Specifically, we look at what seems to be, Tyler, an earlier state of what we call the Apostles' Creed. Kind of share that with us in your research, particularly in the Trillions, his letter in section nine there. He almost gives an Apostles' Creed type statement. Would you read that for us? Yeah, it, it definitely seems that way. So in the, the Trillions, and in, in, it's kind of broke down in chapters, even though there are only one or two verses. So in, in the ninth chapter, it says, Be deaf then to any, who any talk that ignores Jesus Christ, of David's lineage, of Mary, who was really born, ate and drank, was really persecuted under Pontius Pilate, was really crucified and died in the sight of heaven and earth and the underworld. He was really raised from the dead, for his father raised him, just as his father will raise us, who believed on him through through Christ Jesus, apart from apart from whom we have no genuine life. Yeah. And while it's not worded identically, I mean that's the Apostles' Creed. That's that's yeah. the substance and 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 section of the Apostles' Creed. You know, just in a slightly different form. Yeah, and and he's clearly using this as a line of defense to the Trillians against Docetism. Um, hence, he includes things that we wouldn't see in the creed, like he was really persecuted. He really was born. He really ate and drank food and drink. Uh, he was really killed on a cross and really died and really bodily resurrected. The reason he's doing that is because Docetism denies the physical body of Jesus to have existed. He was more of a phantom or some sort of uh, holograph in our world's terminologies. And so what he's doing is he's taking what seems to be creedal language, which is older than himself, that the apostles begin to start using even in the New Testament. And he breaks it down into he's Jesus Christ, born of a physical bloodline, David's lineage, his Judah line of a woman, a real woman. Her name's Mary. He was truly born from a physical woman and he ate physical food and drank physical drink and he died under a true governor who really tried and put to death a man, not a phantom. And so he's he's utilizing this and he tells the Trillians, be deaf to anyone, like turn your ears off to anyone who talks and ignores any of this creedal belief that has been passed on. So what we're learning here is what succession actually is. What are, well, it just means they're bishops and, and that means they're in charge of churches. But what are they getting to the churches that they themselves are passing down from their successors? Well, this is part of the succession. This is the main essential doctrines of belief. This is what they've come to acknowledge about Jesus Christ and the whole Christian faith can be defined in creedal language like this. There's also another one he, in, the, in the Magnesians in 11. It says, I do not write in this way, my dear friends, because I have heard that any of you are like that. Rather, do I, well aware of my humble position, want to caution you ahead. Notice how he's not a dogmatic jerk who enforces his leadership on the congregation. 
He says, I do not want you to fall prey to stupid ideas. Hear, hear. And to urge you to be thoroughly convinced of the birth, the passion, and resurrection, which occurred while Pontius Pilate was governor. Yes, all that was actually and assuredly done by Jesus Christ, our hope. God forbid that any of you should lose it. Why? Because this is what they've come to accept. This is what they've come to define Christianity by. And he says, hey, be careful out there. There are people with stupid ideas who will try to urge you away from what you've been taught as the truth from the eyewitnesses who have been passed down to us. So what does creed teach us here, Tyler? Because what it seems like it's doing is it's protecting doctrine and giving clarity that all the churches could memorize so that they were universally on the same page of the essentials. What do you think? Right. Yeah. A hundred percent. It's, it's a practical short manual to defend against false doctrine. It's, it would be hard for them to have memorized all of the new Testament documents. But if you can get the get the creeds ingrained in your mind and your heart, you can constantly fight against false teachings. It gives you kind of every essential in this short little thing that you can have with you at all times. And it, it's it's heartbreaking to me in, in the way that I grew up that we weren't creedal. We didn't learn the creeds. We didn't have that as a part of our upbringing because there are still these false doctrines prevalent in churches today. But because the church doesn't teach doctrinal creeds and we don't teach the history of these things, it's very easy to get swayed with emotions and swayed with different stuff. Um, and, and, you know, Ignatius talks about that, how they come in and, and they're and we'll talk about it a little bit later. It's another quote. It talks about how they're, they're poison wrapped in honey and wine. And so it, it tastes good when it first gets in your mouth, but it slowly kills you. And, and that's what creeds prevent. That's what they help us fight against is if you have these creeds and you have them in your heart, and you hear something that goes against that creed, you can automatically be assured that that goes against what the church stands on as far as correct doctrine. Yeah, and and, and that's something that you just said that we can apply to the modern church. Now, as Anglicans, we hold the three major creeds, uh, particularly the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed. The Apostles' Creed is particularly only used at baptism and confirmation. The Nicene Creed is used almost on a regular basis throughout the church. And periodically, uh, once, and I think it's coming up in June, we some churches will use the Athanasian Creed on Trinity Sunday. And so these are the main creeds. Now, that one is super long. Uh, and I just put my students, Tyler, my first and second period class, I just put my students through a final exam. And their final exam was to do the Apostles' Creed. I was nice and didn't make them do the Nicene, which is longer. But they need to learn creed. And we all do. The modern church needs to learn creed because what we're doing is we are we are defining what we believe through clear and undeniable terms. And when we're doing that, we're establishing our faith that the generation before us did and before them and before them and before them and before them, all the way back to men like this who he learned from Peter and John and others that he was surrounded by. And we are participating in the apostles' doctrine when we do these things. The idea that we've gotten away from creed is one of the biggest mistakes the modern evangelical church has made. And I'm thankful that there are some evangelical churches that do this. I know that Fellowship Greenville, 
being a part of that church. They've done Nicene Creed. They've done Apostles Creed multiple times. And I would say that's more of an exception than the rule when it comes to churches that are doing creed that are outside of apostolic churches. And this is something that the evangelicals, if you're listening or part of a church, if you're one of the pastors of those churches, I would encourage you to find one of these creeds to insert, even if you do it once a month. I mean, just start teaching the creeds and, and start reciting them in church. Put them up on the screen or give them in a bulletin and read them. The Apostles' Creed is pretty short. doesn't take long to go through. It's about as short as what we just read, Ignatius. What you're doing is you're connecting yourself to a, a verbal confirmation of faith that goes back to the apostles and their students, and, and that's a big deal. Now, another aspect in the letter is, and, and all of these things are pretty much wrapped around the same theme in all three of these letters, and pretty much all seven letters, and that is the unity of the church. Now, it's impossible, Tyler, to have unity without order. So when we looked and when you and I studied this week, the writings of Ignatius, kind of go through your understanding of his position when it comes to how to have order in church. Um, this was something that was hard for me to wrestle through because I, as I as I started to really wrestle it and, and digest it, the the gravity of what he's saying is is massive. Um, without some sort of order, you can't have unity. Without some sort of system to unify the church, and not just you know an individual church, but the global church, you can't have unity. And it got me thinking about you know these isolated independent congregations. You can have unity within your body. But as far as the universal body or your even the, the the citywide body, you can't have any sort of unity if the thing that you profess is one of your biggest tenets is soul independence. You know that that was a a big um, doctrinal stance for a lot of churches as far as you know in the Baptist world and a couple of different denominations is we have soul autonomy that, that we don't have to you know adhere to a bishop. But what you say in that statement is that you would now set a doctrinal practice that disunifies you from the other global churches. And, and the more I read Ignatius and the more that he, he says things is their setup in the early church had bishops and it had elders and it had deacons and the bishops met within a, a college of bishops and they met together. And you can read it all throughout Ignatius's letters that they were friends. They, they spent time together. That was how they kept worldwide unity within the church for as long as they did. Um, if you don't have that structure, then I don't I think the system is set up in such a way that global big C church unity actually can't exist without this yeah. structure. Yeah. And, and and just one of the quotes in his writing to the Trailians, he said, submit to the bishop as to God's law and to the presbyter as well. All of you love one another with an undivided heart. And then he goes through other aspects of this too. He mentions submitting to even the presbyter as the apostles of Christ. Then before that, he said, "Act in, don't act in a way without a bishop, like submit to him as if you're submitting to the law of the Lord. And then he talks about the deacons, his favorite group, uh, and that they are serving and aiding the church and its work. And so what's very clear to me, and this is obvious, uh, just reading Polycarp or Clement or, or himself, that there are three ministerial roles of leadership in the church. Some would call this hierarchical, but I don't, 
care for the terminology because I think it's abused. Sure, hierarchical systems can have abuse to them, but they can also have credibility and accountability. We don't just want one without the other. I don't want just accountability with no credibility. I want credibility and accountability when we're talking about leaderships of the church. And if a bishop is in succession to the apostles, he has the credibility. If he is not a pope, but actually working with other bishops, then he has accountability. Now, I do realize my Roman Catholic friends are a little probably listening to this. Right? Wait a minute, wait a minute. We have magisterium. The Pope has to... Yeah, okay, we get it. But you would also say that he has a higher position than those other bishops. Whereas in, in most uh, circumstances that we see in letters like this, he doesn't see himself as the higher or highest or lesser of the bishops. He sees himself with his fellow bishops and he greets in every letter these fellow bishops, as his equals and friends, regardless of age. And we see in his letter to the Magnesians, there's a young bishop who he is actually defending his leadership despite his age. And so he refuses to give himself any kind of higher position, even over a younger guy. That's not the goal of Ignatius in this. But he does seem to have three ministerial positions the bishops, and he mentions their ordinations. He says this about him in the Tralians as well. Yet at the same time, did not see his authority as equal to the apostles. So again, I want to hear, what you hear me, bishops are not equal to the apostles because people say, oh, see, Ignatius said you should obey the bishops and you should obey as you're obeying Christ and obey the presbyters, the elders, as if you're obeying uh, you know, one of one of the apostles or something like that. So therefore he's saying the bishops are equal to God's authority, etc. Well, obviously not, because he just stated that there's more to it than just that way of thinking. He says the authority is not equal to the apostles. He said, so I'm writing you in this matter more sharply and I spare you out of love since too I am a convict. I have not thought it my place to give you orders like an apostle. So even though he recognizes their authority and he thinks that the church should come around the authority of the bishops and treat their works and their coming together and their unity and their decisions as obeying the laws of the apostles in Christ, he still doesn't see themselves as better or equal to Christ and the apostles. So it's kind of interesting. So how do you think you can explain that, Tyler, where it seems like in one minute he's saying, no, no, our authority is up there with Jesus and, and John. Uh, and then the next sentence, he's saying, I'm going to order you, but I'm not going to order you like an apostle because I'm not one. How do you balance that with these kind of statements? What do you think he's getting at? So I think it's it goes back to the order in the church. There has to be somebody whose job it is to direct and guide and to protect the church and its doctrine. And that is that is the position that Jesus held, especially when teaching his disciples and teaching the other people. It's a positional um parallel instead of an authoritative parallel. They're supposed to be in the position of Christ while the church is in motion. After Christ is in is at the right hand of the Father, the apostles have gone. The bishop's jo job as a collective group is to kind of stand in that place. And then you've got the elders that stand in the place of the apostles and you've got the rest of the church. There had to be somebody who was responsible and the highest authority to to adhere to when it came to to problems of doctrine, it came to schisms, it came to you know, any problems that arose in the church, and so they create that Christ establishes this office as of the bishops to be that role. It's not a 
the same power, same authority, but it is a positional parallel that I think he's he's making throughout his letters. Yeah, and I think you're right. I think that's a, a good way of putting it too. And he even says, you know, let the bishops preside uh, in God's place and the presbyters in the place of the apostolic council and let the deacons, who he says are his special favorites, to be entrusted with the ministry of Jesus Christ. Now note this, the bishop is singular. The elders are plural. The deacons are plural. I know that there are those who are probably in this program, and we love you, who want to hold the idea that the bishop, the pastor, the elder are all terms that are interchangeably for the same office. That is not defendable in the earliest writings like this, like Clement, and then obviously uh, we'll see Polycarp be brought into this as well. And again, this is what we go back to, folks. You, you, We're not asking you to agree with us, that disagree with us. We're asking you to think about it because what, what we're saying is, what we're saying is, is that something happened where Polycarp and Clement and, and Papias and soon to be Justin Martyr and here Ignatius somehow, and then he mentions other bishops that are alive that were also appointed by apostles. He mentions uh, Damis or Damis, who is in the Magnesian church. Now we don't know. We don't know uh, if he knew the apostles being younger, I would say not, but he mentions all of these other names of bishops, the, the Bishop at Ephesus, uh, the Bishop of the Magnesians, the Bishop over in the Tralians. He mentions them individually, one single guy, all of these individuals, all of them folks are working together as apostolic leaders of the church. So what we have to conclude is that these groups of people in the apostles' churches that knew the apostles come together and change the entire system in a few years. And, and maybe that's your position. Um, I'm just asking you to think, is that really plausible? And if it is what you think happened, why was there no outbreak schisms against this? Why weren't people saying, no, 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 we don't hierarchical system. We just want independent churches that that just govern themselves and we don't have to answer to anybody outside of us. See, that was a dangerous thing for these churches too. They couldn't just independently go on their own. You are a illegal practicing religion. <laughs> you are being bombarded by government and heresy all at the same time. To not have order is to have chaos. And yep. any one of those groups would have loved to have taken advantage of a chaotic, out-of-control schism. And so what you have here is you have unity around the leadership of the church. You have bishops who are, are leading in areas like Antioch. And in Antioch, you have these elders working within these churches. And then you have the deacons serving the needs of the church. Folks, this is Titus 1. This is 1 Timothy 3. This is what he's saying. This is, hey, you, Titus, go appoint elders, plural, in every city. So, so what does that look like? It looks like an individual who's doing the ordaining and the succeeding and commissioning of the leaders. That's exactly what's happening here. It's consistent with the New Testament, not opposite. And so within these frameworks of protection with these leaders, we're going to see, yes, Somebody might say, well, wait a minute. Doesn't sometimes Clement use the bishop and the elder interchangeably? Of course he does. 
And as we have always said, Tyler, and we've said this for years, because all bishops are elders, but not all elders are bishops. There needs to be a distinction there. All bishops are elders, not all elders are bishops. So of course, we're going to see them at times used interchangeably, especially when they're writing like this and referring to them as such. So it's important to note that there is unity in the church around order in the church. So yeah. kind of continue into some of that time or kind of continue that because we have some other statements he makes at the Magnesians as well as the Ephesians in this. It's an important subject. Uh, I think the one that was the biggest for me as I was studying is, is in the Tralians. It says, correspondingly, everyone must show the deacons respect. They represent Jesus Christ, just as the bishop has the role of the father and the presbyters are like God's counsel and apostate band. And it says this, and this is huge. This is the straight from Ignatius, word for word. You cannot have a church without these. I'm sure you will agree with me on this. He's saying that without a bishop and elders and deacons, you cannot have a church. So any 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 church that was offshoot just had elders and just deacons without any sort of bishop authority. There there is no church there. They are a sectarian group that to become a part of the big umbrella of the worldwide church, they would have to be adopted in and they would have to come up under the authority of the bishop. There is no other way in Ignatius's mind. Yeah. And, and let me just pause here and say, we know that sounds harsh. That might jolt somebody. Let me say this as well. Uh, just about 70 to 80 years later, Tertullian in North Africa starts seeing churches form that are not under the leadership of bishops. Um, and that's Okay. Uh, when they're under these leaders, they're sitting there and they're examining these churches that don't have them, but they find that their doctrine is actually right. Tertullian doesn't say, yeah, yeah, let them go, let them go. We don't need these people. What he says is, hey, hey, let's rejoice at this. There are people out there that are in churches that were not started by the apostles or their disciples, but yet hold the right doctrine. And they were invited into the communion of the saints of the apostles' churches, but it required them to actually submit to the bishop. And by the way, a bishop isn't something of your own making. There's also evangelical churches out there uh, where somebody shows up at a church and uh, they call themselves bishops and they do these weird faith healing things. Look, <clears throat> a, a, a true bishop is under the succession of the line of the apostles that can be traced. If it's not a traceable line, it's a made-up position. And there's a lot of made-up positions that call themselves bishops out there. So hear us very carefully. We're talking about lines that can be traced all the way back to the apostles. We're not talking about self-appointed people in heretical churches that pull off some weird stunts on Sundays. So we need to hear that. And so um, some other things. Go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, I just... As a practical, just a just a you know to take take it out of the ancient culture, I'm a huge Carolina Gamecock fan, massive. I like all the sports, even though right now we are terrible at all of them except for women's basketball. Um, go Don Staley. But what we're saying here, it, it would be like this. Okay, so the South Carolina Gamecocks, the, this staff that establishes the colors, our fight songs, where the stadium's going to be, uh, the 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 way the salaries are are put together, they ordain how that how that school is going to run. It would be like if I wanted to be a part of a church that wasn't under succession bishop is if I said, I'm a huge Gamecock fan, but my colors are green and purple. I have a completely different mascot. Um, we're going to kind of cheer for the same sport. We're going to do some different from some of the same stuff, 
but I'm not going to recognize any of the authority of the university in, in dealing with my fandom. That would be ludicrous. We would say you're not a fan. You're not actually a part of it because there are rules to being a fan of something. There are statutes in place that you have to follow to be a fan of something, to be a part of that. If you go outside of that, you're, you're not a true fan. You're not a part of it. You have to come up under the university and what they're doing. And so it's the same way with the church. If you're not under the authorized version of the church, the, the church that is under the apostolic leadership and the bishop, and you start something separate, you're not actually under the unified church body. You're, you're, you're something completely different. Yeah, and, and, and that goes into what his point was here, is you, you are skeptical if you weren't willing to attach yourself to the apostles' churches. Remember, they're bringing in, they're fighting heresy. In this very letter, he's, he's fighting docetism. There has to be distinguishing marks. And I know, and, and by the way, I have friends who actually acknowledge this point and will say, hey, we agree. Um, and we agree that God used that system for the first few hundred years to protect the text, to protect the church. We just don't think it's required anymore. Look, if that's you, that's fine. And at least you can acknowledge the beginnings of this were necessitated and that they really did save the New Testament from corruption. And they really did save us from a whole lot of heresy taking over to where we wouldn't be able to identify the true church if it stood up in a line, uh, you know, people lined up on a wall. We wouldn't know which one it was because it was so distorted and mixed in with so much error. And, and because of that, at least, you know, hold the position of, hey, that was, that was definitely what was going on there. And wow, I'm so glad it happened. It saved so much problems. We just don't think it's necessary for, for us today. God used that for a time and a place. I would disagree with you, but hey, at least you're being honest about the history and at least see the value of the system the apostles put in place through their successors. Another issue that is here is the importance of church. Who would have thought? Uh, who would have thought that seeing church is important? He says this in his letter to the Ephesians. Make no mistake about it. If, every, if anyone is inside the sanctuary, uh, if anyone is not inside the sanctuary, meaning they, they abandoned the gathering, if you would, he lacks God's bread. And if the prayer of one or two has great avail, how much more that of the bishop and the total church? He who fails to join in your worship shows his arrogance by the very fact of becoming a schismatic. It is written, moreover, God resists the proud. Let us then heartily avoid resisting the bishop so that we may be subject to God the more anyone sees the bishop modestly silent, the more he should revere him. For everyone the master of the house sends on his business, we ought to receive the one who he sent. It is clear then that we should regard the bishop as the Lord himself. That's going back to what we just talked about a minute ago. Indeed, Onesimus spoke very highly of your godly conduct, that you are all living by the truth and harboring no sectarianism, nay, you heed nobody beyond what he has to say truthfully about Jesus Christ. Now, it's, by the way, fun fact, uh, it is rumored that Onesimus here is the same Onesimus from the book of Philemon, and that he later became a bishop there associated with Ephesus. Uh, that is very possible, uh, but there, there is rumor that when he says Onesimus, that's exactly who he's referring to. But here, Tyler, um, he's concerned about abandoning church or abandoning the right church, which leads to schismatic behavior uh, and, and, and schisms forming that seek to harm the truth. I mean, he says it at the very end. Beyond that, 
what he has to say truthfully about Jesus Christ. Because it's Onesimus who's reporting back, hey, our churches are in line with the truth. They're not schismatic. So how important it is for him to emphasize their coming to church? Because he even says to the Magnesians, we have not only been called Christians, but we need to be Christians. We need to live like it. And the same thing as calling a man a bishop and then doing everything in disregard of him. Meaning we choose to reject authority. We choose to reject accountability. Therefore, we don't care what the church has to say. We're going to do our own little independent thing over here. Why is it such a big deal that he's concerned about sectarianism hitting these churches? Say that again. Why are you concerned about sectarianism? Why do you think he's had sectarianism concerned about that with these churches? I mean, he's giving these warnings like, hey, be a part of the church. Be in unity with the church. Because it's, one, and this is just off the, off the cuff here, it's sketchy to not want to be a part of the, part of the apostle church. Like that's what the church is. Why would you not want to? It it, it almost breeds this this um, this mistrust from the other churches. Like this is who we are, and you're saying you believe in Jesus, but you 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 don't want to come up under the authority. That automatically gives rise to an untrustful nature, a disunified nature, because you have to you have to ask the question: Why do you not want to be under the authority of the church? Those people are automatically in a in a schismatic mindset. Those people are automatically in a in a sectarian group. So they're they're automatically going to come with with a rub there that's going to cause disunity. And and you hear Jesus in John seventeen talking about let them let them be unified. Let them be in the same unity that me and you, the, you know, me and the Father have. Uh, he prays for that diligently. Yep. That we will we will be known by our unity. We'll be known by how we love one another. And so, if you come and you say, "Okay, I believe in your Jesus. I believe everything that He said," but I don't like you or your authority, that shows that those groups of people are against authority and they're against oversight. And if you are against authority and oversight, then you are a prideful person. You are a, a conceited person. That's what that's what um, Ignatius is saying um, to the Ephesians that his that he shows by his arrogance. The, the very fact that he's a schismatic. And so off the bat there, you've got a war between that and the church and the church wasn't going to allow that. Yeah. And, and the notice he didn't call them heretics. He just said they were arrogant. Um, he's not reached the point. Now he will call out docetism as heresy, but <clears throat> the people that are struggling to follow leadership in the formation of the succession, he's not calling them heretics, but he is calling them arrogant. So I want to make sure you understand that he's not running to the heretical card on him. It is suspicion and arrogance that he has called them to at this point. Another important issue for him that we see in his writings is he was sacramental. Uh, he saw the sacraments as essential and important and not just in a memorialized way. Very, very specific. I love what he says to the Ephesians in chapter, in that section 20 there. He says, I will do this, especially if the Lord shows me <clears throat> that you are all, every one of you meeting together under the influence of the grace that we owe to his name. So first of all, let's pause there. That goes back to the unity. Every one of us, when they meet in church and in unity, we are doing it because Christ deserves it. His name requires it. It's just what you mentioned in John 17 in the prayer. Make them one as we are one. 
Make us one. That's what he's looking for. We owe it to Jesus to be unified. It's basically what he's saying. In one faith and in union with Christ, who is descended from David according to the flesh, and is the son of man and son of God. At these meetings, you should heed the bishop and presbytery attentively, or the elders attentively. Break one loaf, which is the medicine of immortality, and the antidote which wards off death, but yields continuous life in union with Jesus Christ. The bread he's referring to is the sacrament of Eucharist. Yep. And the breaking of that bread, he, it's interesting, even some churches get away from this because they break it down into wafers, but he wanted them to have one loaf. They're all taken of one loaf. And I find that to be important because he's teaching again the unity here, but he calls it the medicine of immortality. He calls it the antidote that wards off death and continues life in union with Jesus. Man, Tyler, that does not just sound like mere symbolism. It can't be. I mean, he's he's saying that, I mean, that this is a powerful, powerful thing that we should consume regularly. It's an antidote. It's 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 the the medicines. So it's this it's this constant warding off of the sin in our life, is is kind of how he breaks it down and kind of puts it together. It's this we've got to take it regularly to ward off the evil that is a part of our original sin. It's a part of the 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 damage that was done in the garden. It's it's wild. It it just it blows my mind to hear him say that and then read everything in the New Testament that we believe it just can't be a symbol. There's, there's no way it's, it's got to do something spiritually that's full of grace to the partaker, um, especially in the eyes of Ignatius and the early church fathers. Yeah. They looked at it as spiritual food. It's spiritual food that benefits the spiritual side. That's what he's focusing on. Immortality being eternal life itself. The antidote that wards off death. That's about physical death. He's talking about the decaying effects of sin and curse and continued, continues to yield the fruit of life in us. And union with Christ, that's real presence, Tyler. That's yep. real presence. <laughs> I mean, like, you cannot leave the earliest stages of the church and find a person who believed that they were just merely symbolic and only looking back in a memorial way, and that there was no active abiding power in the sacrament itself where they were not being united to Christ in bodily presence. There's no way you can get into that very, very early on. And I'm thankful. I even have some Baptist friends who recently come out and made statements that they hold a real presence because it's undeniable in places like this. Yep. So I, it's just, can't, you just can't do it. He obviously had a view of baptism as well. That was not just merely, you know, symbolic and in 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 a big day for us, Tyler. You you're at the service at church uh, with my wife and I and the kids. You know, the kids were baptized today in the sacrament mm-hmm. of baptism. And he says this: For our God Jesus the Messiah was conceived by Mary in God's plan, being sprung from both the seed of David and from the Holy Spirit. That's the hypostatic union right there. I mean, that's the beauty of God becoming a man. He's got the seed of David but he's from the Holy Spirit, not Joseph. He was born and baptized that his passion, so that by his passion, he might hallow or purify the water. 
So his baptism brought some sort of purification, hallowing, if you would, of the baptismal water so that when we are baptized in him, we are being baptized in the pure water. Now, you and myself and Pat did a whole program on YouTube. Those listening to this on the podcast, go back to the YouTube channel of Explore Christianity. You'll find it. We talked about, is there a waterless salvation? You can find that. We go through great, great detail. We won't do that here. But there's no doubt that he believed, Tyler, mm -hmm. that the waters of baptism have spiritual effect. Right. And I think it's interesting, too. He said he was born. So you've got the, the Nicodemus kind of born of water situation. Yep. And then it says he was baptized, which is, you know, baptized in the Jordan. And then he brings in his passion, which Jesus is talking about to the disciples, that he has a baptism that he still has to go through with the baptism of, of his crucifixion, his death and burial and, and resurrection. So all three of Jesus's like baptisms are wrapped in this one situation. And then it talks about how he hallows the water. His whole life was a hallowing of this, of the, the purification water. And so Ignatius clearly believes that Jesus did a great work in the water during his lifetime and that we are now participants of that great work that Jesus started. Um, and it's, it's a purification for us. Absolutely. And, you know, people, you might say, oh, well, you know, praying over and asking God to sanctify water. I mean, that's kind of odd. You know, I don't, I don't, how, how does that work? It's like, okay. And I usually ask people that say that, do you pray over your food before you eat? If it doesn't do anything, what are you doing it for? I mean, right. I mean, I, I, I just, I think we're inconsistent with that little thing where, where it bothers us, but this is what the early church believed. Who cares what we think? This is what the early church believed. This is what the early bishops <clears throat> who knew the apostles practiced. All right. So we got to go down into the letter here. Let's talk about false teaching. We, we've talked about unity quite a bit. I think we can say that there's quite a few things there that show it. He talks about celebrating uh, the one, the only one part I really want to focus on unity is the unity in the Eucharist, since we're already on the subject. He says, try to gather more frequently to celebrate God's Eucharist and praise him. For when you meet frequently, Satan's powers are overthrown. His destructiveness is undone by unanimity of your faith. There is nothing better than peace by which all strife in heaven and earth is done away. And that is, in my opinion, to the Ephesians, he says that is one of the most powerful statements that Ignatius writes. And I know you're very fond of this statement, but man, that's unity, that's sacrament, that's, that's, I mean, a work of God in his, in the midst, the faith altogether, strife mm -hmm. and heaven and earth are done away with. And it doesn't, and, and honestly, if what he's saying is true, every time we gather, we should be taking the Eucharist. We don't need to be, yep. you know, doing this every fifth Sunday of the year stuff. Like we need to be doing this regularly and it sounds like that's what the early church was doing yep absolutely it's my favorite section uh, that he writes in all of his letters um, because i mean that shows what the true power of unity within the church is and what it looks like and it it really kind of is a concise version of this is who we should be and this is what we should be about the gathering together the unity of the body the breaking the bread and celebrating christ if we can do that if we can be unified we can break the bread and take the eucharist together and we can have that one mindset then Satan is powerless to stop everything, which is exactly what Jesus said. He said, I, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail. It's off that, that, that mindset and that power that, that Jesus can, we can walk through that promise that Jesus makes about his church. 
Absolutely. And, and what the Eucharist also does is it brings people together in the unity of the faith, because at the Eucharist, they're declaring the truth. Think about what he says mm -hmm. to the Trillians about false teaching in chapter six of the Trillians. It says, I urge you, therefore, not I, but Jesus Christ's love. Use only Christian food. Now, he's not saying like <clears throat> Christians have a different dietary law than the rest of the world. That's not what he's saying at all. He says, keep off foreign fare, by which I mean heresy. So eating of the Eucharist is spiritual food that is nourishing because at it, you're also proclaiming the Lord in his presence. Whereas if you start eating the message of outsiders and you're apart from the congregation, you're apart from the bishop, you're apart from the leaders of the presbytery. You're leaving that realm, and now you're listening to bad theology. He says, for people mingle Jesus Christ with their teachings just to gain your confidence under false pretenses. It is as if they were giving a deadly poison, this is what you referenced earlier, mixed mm -hmm. with honey and wine, with the result that the unsuspecting victim gladly accepts it, drinks down death with fatal pleasure. And what he's getting at is, this is why you need a church that has credibility and accountability mm -hmm. and a regular practice of professing your faith and coming together in unity. Remember what he said just a minute ago that we read, all strife in heaven and earth is done away with, and that basically Satan's powers are overthrown at the table. And so don't leave that place to go find spiritual Christian food in some new idea, some yep. new thought, some new tickle my ears theology. No, 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 no. Stay consistent to the truth because there's false teaching that's trying to steal you away. Mm -hmm. It's it's crazy. And I, I like what he says to the Ephesians in the second and the seventh section. He says, some indeed have a wicked and deceitful habit of flaunting the name about while acting in an inward and in, in, acting in a way unworthy of God. And he says this, you must avoid them like wild beasts, for they are mad dogs which bite on the sly. You must be on guard against them, for it is hard to heal their bite. So he's saying in both of these things that these people have Jesus in their mouth. They've got Jesus on their lips. They're professing Jesus, but it's it's mixed in with this, this vile teaching. It's mixed in with this false doctrine. And and it, it, it talks about with the wine and honey, it's it's a deadly poison. And it, it they drink it down. They drink down death with fatal pleasure. So it's a fun thing. They get wrapped up in the in the the, the fanciful doctrines of Jesus. That has all this fun stuff like the the health and wealth doctrines and all the fake you know prosperity stuff out there. It feels good. It's fun to do. But what it is, it's a deadly poison. And then when you read to the letter of the Ephesians, he says that it's hard to heal their bite. So once you get wrapped up in these false doctrines, you kind of feel that pleasure. You get sunk down in that direction that it's, it's difficult to, to recover from that, that the bites mm. aren't easily healed from this false doctrine. And so not only is it a danger that this false doctrine can keep you away, but know this, that if you start listening to this false doctrine, this tickling of the ears, as the, as the New Testament would say, it's very difficult to come be rescued out of that. Uh, I think about you know some Mormons that I've, I've come in contact with. like They have listened to that false teaching for so long that I, I think me and you talked about this a while back. Like It takes over... I think the average is over a year of evangelism to bring them back out of that. If, if even, if you ever can even become successful, it's so hard to bring people out of a false doctrine, especially one that makes them feel a certain way and have this good feeling about it. Um, and, and Ignatius is very clearly teaching and, and 
trying to, to pray that they will not fall into that. Yeah, unless we be deceived that Ignatius only taught practice. He did teach doctrine uh, very in depth. Like it wasn't just like, hey, stay away from these people. He gave reasons as to why he talks. And again, we just talked about creed. He also gets pretty deep into even what their salvation is contained in to the Ephesians in his intro. I mean, he reminds them of Paul's intro to them when dealing with that you're predestined from eternity to enjoy forever the continual and unfading glory. Like, hey, the Christian life of doing uh, the right thing and being a part of the right church and of the right leadership and the right accountability is not boring. It's, it's enjoyable. And that's sacramental living. It's enjoying pleasure with God, not without him. And it's doing it his way because true joy is found in his instructions. And if we follow him in truth, there we will find, as he says, continual and unfading glory and we'll enjoy it, not just now, but forever. Mm-hmm. And then he talks about things like they're predestined to this, they're elected to this, they're chosen this. So he's heavily involved in theology and soteriology particularly. But one of the things, we only have just a couple minutes here that I want to make sure that we we recognize in the early church, that they looked at the this, this easy modern-day easy believism and, and would have chucked it out the window. Like, oh, I said a prayer at an altar one day. So what? I mean, I like what he says to the Ephesians in section 14. He says, for what matters is not a momentary act of professing, but being persistently motiva- motivated by that faith. And so what he's saying is, hey, you made a, a mo- you had a momentary act of professing the right thing. Good for you, man. It means nothing if you don't stay persevering and persistently motivated in the faith you once professed. Mm-hmm. So he would have rejected a lot of today's come as you are, leave as you were, come down an altar, make some prayer, and 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 and, and you're in. You're in. Nothing else yep. needs to be done. You know, we'll get you baptized. It might be your fifth time, but we'll get you baptized say a prayer. Those days did not exist, Tyler, in the realm nope. of the way of Ignatius thought. It, it, it just didn't. And I, I think, I think if we look back over this entire, you know, section, and these are just highlights, guys, they, they, there's so much more depth in these <laughs> letters. They're easy to read. Please go read them for yourself. Um, but I think we can kind of, you know, f- for me, what I, I took away from, from the whole thing is that the church was meant to be unified, not splitting every every three to four years over the pillow of the carpet <laughs> and and those things come because there is no oversight within modern church um sex there is no grouping together which is what is is partially what led me to to move to the anglican faith there is a, an order there is a, a a hierarchy if you will i don't mind using the word because it's what it is um of, of authority that I can fall under and I can rest assured that this is not an authority that was crafted by man's hands, but this is something that goes all the way back to the apostles. I have leadership and history um, and, and the, the traditions of the fathers that I can go back on and say, I rest assured in the history of my faith going under that and being under an authority that is bigger than one congregation is huge. It's an important thing. And, and then having unity within that and going to a church that practices the, the, the scripture that, that teaches creeds, that teaches unity and faith, that does the Eucharist. These things are essential parts of Christian life. You, yep. you can't just be a Christian and not go to church. You can't be a Christian and not regularly partake of the Eucharist. You're leaving yourself open to false doctrine, to to the the, the whims of, of Satan. If you kind of reverse what um, Ignatius is saying about unity of the church, if, if being together in unity and taking the bread is something that, that defeats the power of Satan, then not doing that is welcoming the power of Satan into your life. 
That's that's the opposite of what he's he's saying if you kind of take it and flip it on its head. And so for the modern Christian, th- this stuff matters because there's a world of people out there, this this modern evangelical stuff that says, I don't have to go to church. I don't have to have authority in my life. I don't have to, to bend my life to, to certain doctrines. If you do that and you're not a part of those things, then you are on the path of false teachings, which which Ignatius warns is, is, is like a dog bite that won't heal and is like a poison mixed with honey that will eventually lead to death. And you are on a bad road. Um, and so this stuff is relevant. And I think we're seeing the fruit of that, particularly in Europe and the United States and all of the deadly poison. I mean, there's so much danger in theology. I mean, cults classes uh, in the books for cults classes curriculum are just constantly growing. And they're not going to, they're not going to stop. There's going to continually be, error that keeps breeding more error. And that is why we have to have a home base. We have to have a place to go back to and say, this is what the true church has always taught. Is it possible? Absolutely. Study history. That's why you're listening to this program because we're teaching it. We're not saying you got to be what we are. We're not saying you got to believe what we believe. We are here on this program. Facts was created to create thoughts and and perspective and ideas that will allow you to get out of your mindset of normality that you think as Christianity is normal and be a better person and a better student of the word of God and the history of our church and allow yourself to be changed by both and see it for what it really is. See both for what they really are. And we think a good place to start, obviously in this, and some of you can put this in the comments, would just start with works like Eusebius because he actually goes into Ignatius and others. But these letters, like Ignatius, would be another good place to start and, and read the seven letters of Ignatius because we think that they will help you. They'll give you perspective. They'll encourage you. And the Lord will use them to bless you. But as always, thanks again, Tyler, for tuning in. And thanks again to the audience for tuning in. Uh, we appreciate all that you do. And we did go over a little bit on our time, but These are good discussions, and there's two more episodes coming up on this, and we appreciate uh, the support that you guys have continually given. The feedback has been tremendous, and we don't want to lose sight of that. So once again, as always, our website, explorechristianity.net, grace and peace to you.